oh my gosh. It like I every time I watch that video or just kind of relive that moment, I get chills. Because I, I can't even believe that it, it worked out so well. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is gonna be close. Welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? Well, did you see my cool move to get to my seat? I jumped over the step, I spun around, and then made a perfect dismount. That is now the brown. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) In the podcasting official code of points. You now have a move move named after you. (laughs) It's all I've ever wanted. (laughs) I think, though, I would prefer it called the Allison. You can make that choice. Yeah, you can. I mean, we haven't really discussed about the code of points and executing your own moves yet. We got to work this out. (laughs) Leave that for the staff meetings. (laughs) (laughs) The meetings with the podcasting officials. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But we'll work it out. So you either had the Allison or you had the Brown. And you've laid down the gauntlet because I need a move for myself as you well. You need a Jarrus. I need a Jarrus. So exactly. I can I can think of plenty of Jarrus moves that would not be appropriate. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so we're talking about moves because we are talking with an Olympian who does have a move named after her. We talked with Hori Gabishin. She is the first female gymnast to represent the Republic of Armenia at the Olympic Games. She competed at Rio 2016, where she placed 38th in the all-around and successfully executed a brand-new uneven bars mount, which is now known as the Gabishin. Take a listen. Well, I know where I want to start. Where, where do you want to start? Go ahead. I want to start with her move. Oh, okay, gosh, yeah. We got to talk about the Gabishin move on the uneven bars because that is pretty amazing to watch so how did you come up with it what's what's the spark of the idea for that so you know i wanted to make my mark in one way or another and the really the biggest way that you can do that in the sport of gymnastics is by inventing a skill having it be named after you and then having others compete this same skill you know in years and years and years and years to come And so it's kind of always a dream of most people to be like, oh, you know, I I have a skill named after me. So I had like gone through pretty much all of my training and it was maybe like two or three months before the Olympic Games. And I kind of had this realization like, okay, I'm I'm not going to make it into a final. I don't think, you know, yes, I'm the first female representing the Republic of Armenia in the sport of gymnastics um, at the Olympic Games, but, but I wanted something more. And so then I just started playing around and I looked at our rule book to see like what gymnastic skill hadn't been done yet. And that was hard to find because like every gymnastic skill has been done other than like adding a twist or a flip or something like that. And so I had to be super, super creative. And I kind of put together a old mount that I had and then got the idea of just adding a full twist from actually a friend of mine who was playing on the trampoline. And she was like, well, why don't you put these two things together? And after a bunch of trial and error and falling and getting back up and trying it again, um, I ended up finally catching the bar a couple of times and I said, you know what, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try it at the Olympic games. And if I hit it, it's going to be my move. So that's kind of how it came to be. Well, it's gorgeous. It really is beautiful. So you propel yourself for, I'm going to use some very low tech terms. You propel yourself over the low bar, do a full twist, catch the high bar, and then just, you know, kip to a handstand like it's nothing. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. It definitely is not nothing, but uh, (laughs) yep, that's about it. (laughs) How many times did you slam your shins on the low bar? Oh my gosh, too many to count. Um, I had bruises on my legs. I would like smash my fingers into the high bar. So I had 
you know, swollen fingers. It, it was traumatic, but uh, luckily I made it through all the, the scrapes and bumps and I eventually caught far <laughs> when it counted. Oh yeah. The, because you qualified the move at the Olympics and Correct. to me, to me, it looked perfect. Were you happy with how you actually performed the skill at that competition? Yes, I was so relieved. If you, you know, watch any of the videos um, from the Olympic Games, bars was my very first event. That skill was my very first skill. So, of course, one, I'm nervous because, hey, I'm at the Olympic Games. <laughs> like, this is the real deal. But two, like, I had never competed this skill before. I wanted to make sure it was perfect because you actually don't get another chance if it's a mount to do it over again and get it named after you. So there was tons of pressure and tons of things going through my mind. But once I hit that skill and um, I, you know, seamlessly did that kip can stand stand, like you said, the rest of the routine was super smooth. The rest of the Olympics was like, I was just so happy to be there and so relieved and just there to enjoy my time. So yeah, I, it was definitely nerve wracking being there and doing it, but I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> And you stuck the landing on the bars. Yes. Oh my gosh. It, like I, every time I watch that video or just kind of relive that moment, I get chills because I, I can't even believe that it, it worked out so well. Well, and what I love in watching you compete at Rio is that after every, after every routine, you kiss the apparatus and you could tell you were having so much fun being there and it, it really showed in all of your performances. Thank you. Thank you. I, and that was definitely something that was not planned. Once I like caught the bar on the Gabishian and I stuck that landing on bars, I was like, this is amazing. Like, how can I show my appreciation? And that's kind of where that came from. I, you know, hugged and kissed the bars and I was like, you know what, I'm going to, this is my last time on each one of these events. This is my last time in front of this crowd. Like, I need to show my appreciation in one way or another. So I just I continued that on to each each one of the events. And the crowd loved it. They really reacted, especially on oh. bars. I noticed and it was so yeah. sweet. And of course, Jill and I are sort of known for crying at things. And I'm like, how many times do I need to watch this video? Because I'm going to start crying every time. <laughs> oh, I'm flattered. And then well, I do want to mention this. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I'm glad that, you know, it totally makes a difference when the crowd is there with you and they're kind of experiencing the experience with you. And that was something that was important to me as well, because not only is this my last time, but this is a show and this is entertainment. And I, and I wanted everybody to feel part of my journey. And so I hope that they did. I, I feel like, you know, what you're saying to me is that you did. So thank you for that. And I do want to mention, cause I know we want to go back to the beginning, but and I'm glad I didn't know this when I first watched the video was that Mount Ararat was beaded on your leotard. Yes, yes. I need so that that was the thing. Like I there's so many layers in me competing for Armenia, representing Armenia, you know, coming back to my heritage and, you know, doing something big for our nation. Um, especially, you know, right now we are in so much turmoil, um, you know, not to bring up too much politics or anything, which I wasn't planning on doing, but like Armenia is at war right now and nobody knows about it. Um, and so doing those types of little things, wearing Mount Ararat on my chest, um, representing a nation that is small but mighty um, is, is important to me and, and was super important that, you know, people notice that. So thank you for noticing that. Um, it, it definitely was important and, and something that really signified kind of who I am and, and what we are as, as Armenians. So Rio was your last meet. How long was your career as a gymnast? So I started when I was five. I trained, you know, I, I trained all the levels. I competed in college. And then I tried for my actually first attempt at competing at the 2012 Olympic Games. And I missed qualifying um, by two tenths. Um, and was a reserve athlete. And of course, nobody dropped out of the Olympic Games. So I didn't go in 2012. And then I actually quit gymnastics for about three years. I went to uh, graduate school to become a physician assistant, did my medical training. And then I decided, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back. So 
I think in total, maybe about 20 years um, of my life was spent doing gymnastics. I took a little little break there right before the 2016 games. But yeah, it's been a, a big part of my life for pretty much all my life. <laughs> and when did you realize you could compete for Armenia? So my, actually, so my mom will always be like, you know, I told you to do this when you were a little kid. Um, but so, like, I, I always kind of knew the possibility was there, but I didn't actually decide to go for it until I was in college, um, until I was a senior in college. And I realistically thought that, hey, maybe I could do this and I was good enough to compete at an Olympic Games or even internationally in and of itself. So I got my citizenship, uh, my dual citizenship in 2010, I'm pretty sure. And then my first international competition was in 2011. So that was when I was ooh, 22, maybe. And then I, you know, hung up my grips for a little while and started back up when I was 25, trying again for my second push at the Olympics in 2016. So Allison's also working on her dual citizenship with Italy. What I am. Pro- what was the process <laughs> of? What was your process of getting citizenship like? Yeah. Um, so my process was a little bit different than you know the average person just because I had an Olympic committee that was kind of behind me that said, um, yes, we like, they wrote me a letter of recommendation. I guess that would be what it would be called. Said, yes, we would like her to represent our country. She has Armenian heritage, you know, please grant her her citizenship. But basically what I needed, I I needed to prove my heritage to Armenia, both, you know, my grandparents, um, my entire family is from Armenia through the Armenian genocide most Armenians have been dispersed all over the world. Um, and we ended up here in the United States, but so I had to do that. Um, I had to go to Armenia, like physically go to Armenia, take like a citizenship test, I guess that that's what it's called. And then that was, that was it. Fill out some paperwork. And a couple of months later, I had to go back, um, meet with a couple of people and, uh, I had my citizenship. So it was, it was expedited and a little bit easier for me, but I think as long as, you know, even now I I have had athletes that I've worked with that are Armenian American that want to do the same things that I do. And it's a little bit easier now because you don't actually physically have to go to Armenia. You can just go to the consulate here in the United States. So, but basically prove your citizenship, pass the test and pay a little fee and you're, you're good to go. (laughs) So you mentioned the Armenian Olympic Committee. What was your relationship? How did that relationship start? Yeah, so I was actually super fortunate and really lucky. My parents had a very good friend. His name is Paul. He actually was like a liaison part of the Armenian Olympic Committee. Um, and he went to college with my, my dad, was good friends with my mom. And his daughters did gymnastics with me growing up. And through kind of discussions with my parents and kind of watching me grow up in the sport, he was like, you know what, it would be really great if Hootie could compete for us because one, we need more women to represent us because, you know, most of the medals that Armenia wins or the sports that they're in are like these male dominated, like boxing, wrestling, weightlifting. Um, So they needed women. And he was like, you know what, she, she has a lot of talent. She has what it takes. Um, what are your guys' thoughts? So it was lucky for us that we had a friend that was kind of in, in the know and in the in that guided us in the right direction. Because without him, I wouldn't have even thought that this was a possibility for me to do. Uh, and I probably would have brushed off my mom and been like, Mom, you're crazy. I'm definitely not doing that. But an outsider that's actually part of the Olympic Committee saying, hey, yes, you have what it takes was a, was a nice little nudge. So what was the reaction in Armenia? Because obviously you were raised here in the United States. You've always lived here in the United States. What was the reaction there to you competing for Armenia? Uh, I think it was twofold. Um, There's always a little bit of like difficulty in like being a diasporan um, of any country to really make the um, like locals and individuals feel like you know, you're part of you're part of them, even though you're not there. So that was a big struggle for me to really be like, I am Armenian, I am one of you guys, even though I don't, you know, live down the street from you, I am one of you. So so that was an interesting kind of struggle um, to overcome. But I think once I was able to show them 
who I am and what I am made for and kind of my passion in, in both our culture um, as well as my sport and just being a professional. Uh, I think I earned that respect from the locals, from the gymnastics committee, kind of everybody involved. And then there's, you know, the whole other side that I kind of was a celebrity, even though I wasn't there. Um, I did visit Armenia last year in 2019. Finally, I spent five weeks there um, and kind of did a little tour around, um, visited the gymnastics facilities there that oof, need a lot of work. But, you know, kind of kind of tried to get a, a feel of what's there, who's there, what can I do to help. And it was really kind of eye-opening to see that people knew who I was. Um, you know, they were like, we watched you on TV. You were amazing. You know, all these things that I did not expect because there were so many things to kind of overcome to earn that respect. But yeah, it, it was, it, it's cool to be like a little bit of a local celebrity, I guess, um, like unknowingly because I'm not there. <laughs> so you can, you know, it's sort of like Hannah Montana where you have your normal day life and then you could always fly over there if you need your ego stroked. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't that famous, but people didn't know who I was. It was funny because I have a friend here who, who moved over to Armenia um, and married one of one of my good friends from church. And I, when I was preparing to go to Armenia, I was like, you know what, what should I expect? I haven't been there since I competed at Rio. And he was like, oh, people are going to know who you are. Um, nobody's going to come up to you. Nobody's going to ask you for your autograph. It's different in Armenia than it is here in the United States. But people may, you know, look and be like, oh, wow, like, that's her. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I'm not, like, that, that's so strange. <laughs> like, I, I don't know if I'm ready for that. But, no, everybody was super respectful. But it was, it was nice to, to be able to go and at least kind of, like, make somebody's day or put a smile on somebody's face and, and meet a whole bunch of people and hopefully impact them in a positive way. What was the reaction from the American gymnastics community to you competing for a different country? For me, I mo mostly it was supportive. I was older, so I competed at the Olympic Games when I was 27. So I think right now the culture of gymnastics is actually changing. People are really encouraging athletes to continue their career into their 20s and further. And so when people realized that I was going to continue doing this and hopefully like positively impact, you know, my homeland and, and where I'm from, I mostly got positive encouragement. Um, people were super excited about it. I, you know, was not at the level that, you know, of a Simone Biles, somebody getting a gold medal um, at the Olympic games. So the transition was a little bit easier for me to, um, compete for another country versus the United States. Um, I just had to make that choice whether I was done competing for the U.S. and starting to compete for Armenia. But overall, it was, it was super positive and encouraging. Oh, that's good. What yeah. kind of support did you get from, like, the Armenian Olympic Committee and the International Olympic Committee? Because I've watched videos from the Olympic Channel that promote you as being the first gymnast from Armenia, and they like it when countries get added to sports, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, and that was one of the main reasons why I, you know, they wanted me to do gymnastics for Armenia, increase their, you know, women count, increase their sport count. Um, it was, a, it was a big deal for the international Olympic committee as well as for the Armenian Olympic committee. However, the support I got was very minimal. Um, a lot of my gymnastics journey was, done on my own. Yes, they provided me the opportunity. Yes, they helped me get my citizenship. Yes, they opened up a ton of doors for me, and I absolutely would never have been able to do anything that I did without the opportunity that they provided me. However, all of my training, you know, I, I coached myself. I paid for everything on my own. My family helped me a little bit. I, you know, worked full-time as a physician assistant while I was training full-time for the Olympic Games. So that I could provide for myself and, you know, kind of make this dream a reality. So they provided me the opportunity, but actually getting to the Olympic Games was kind of all on me. I needed to make sure I was ready physically, mentally, emotionally, as well as financially. You know, all of my flights, all of my leotards, all of my equipment, everything was kind of on me to, to make sure I got done. And I did. It was my goal and my dream. And 
they gave me the the green light so I took it and I ran with it and I did the best I possibly could with the limited resources that I had. A side note, because you mentioned how it was all on you and that you are a physician assistant. And I wondered if when you got hurt, because I know you've had various injuries, if you just looked at the trainers and were like, um, no, I'm sorry, that's not how that should be done. <laughs> it was, well, luckily, I actually had a really smooth return to gymnastics um, as far as injuries. And like I I did everything I possibly could to be as healthy as possible. My nutrition was super on point. My strength and conditioning, super on point. Again, my training plans, on point. All of these things, I used pretty much my education from my undergrad as well as my graduate schooling to plan out my nutrition, to plan out my strength and conditioning, to plan out my training plans so that I wouldn't get hurt, you know, lots of rehab or lots of prehab so that um, I didn't have to rehab with an injury. But, you know, I did have aches and pains. I did go see professionals that uh, would be able to help me out. But I did have a good idea of kind of what my body was doing and how my body felt so that I could take it easy if I knew something was coming on or um, I knew when to push myself. But yeah, I, I do have a background in sports medicine, so I was familiar, but I never said like, oh, you guys aren't doing the right job because, <laughs> you know, everybody has, has their strengths and that, that definitely wasn't my strength to treat my own injuries if I had them. That would just be me. <laughs> <laughs> it did help with my training, but uh, I definitely would have had to have help if I did get injured. Luckily, I didn't. So Rio, getting there, what was it like when you arrived? And tell us about your experiences just in the non-competition aspect of Rio. Yeah. So it's crazy. Like, it's so crazy because that was like already four years ago, over four years ago. Like, I can't even believe it. But it was interesting because so I showed up about a week before my competition ever was, about a week before the opening ceremonies. So we were, and a lot of the athletes did as well. So we were like living in the Olympic village and training in the facilities before the actual game started. So once the game started, there wasn't really like a, oh, hey, like I'm at the Olympic games. Like this is happening. Um, Cause we had kind of already been there and that, that was like became quote unquote like the norm for the week. But when it finally hit me that like, this is real, like, I'm here. Like, this is my shot. This is my chance. This is what I've worked my entire life for was actually when I walked in the opening ceremonies and like, we, we have to, as athletes, like we're waiting and waiting and waiting outside the um, arena for hours. I think we showed up at like two or three o'clock and the opening ceremonies don't even start till like seven or eight at night. And so we're waiting there for hours and we hear the excitement. We hear everything that's going on. And finally, at the end, like you get shuffled in through like this small tunnel and then you get out into this big arena and then it's like lights, confetti, music, like cheering and everything. And, and you just look around and I finally was like, oh my gosh, I'm at the Olympic Games. These people are here watching me. <laughs> like It was, I mean, not just me, but you know, we're, we're here. So that was, that was pretty cool like kind of a I don't know realization that that this is this is how it is and this is this is real um but then just general life in the village was was totally normal you know there's cafeteria there was a game room I was there by myself I didn't have anybody else like on my quote-unquote like gymnastics team so I made friends with lots of other athletes that were also kind of there by themselves representing their nations. Um, it was hard to tell like who spoke English and who didn't. So that was an interesting type of like, can I communicate with you? Can I not? But, but yeah, I mean, just general life was, was fun and exciting. And I tried to, once my competition was done, which was I think on day two of the Olympics, there was two more weeks of events. So I tried to go to as many things as I possibly could. You know, I went to track, swimming, volleyball, like everything. Because when else am I going to be at the Olympic Games? When else am I going to be able to see people make their dreams happen right in front of my, my eyes? So that was kind of my Olympic experience for the three weeks I was there in a nutshell. Did you have a single room at the village or did they put you with a roommate? 
so the way that they worked were like they were like little suites so in my suite I was with um other girls on the Armenian team there were two wrestlers and two weightlifters and so they we had three bedrooms I was by myself in my bedroom and then the two wrestlers had their bedroom together and then the two weightlifters had their bedroom together and then we shared a bathroom and then we had like a common living room space so I had my own room and my own like privacy but um was kind of part of a a little apartment uh with the other girls on the Armenian team in their respective sports did the weightlifters ever try and bench press you (laughs) no not at all but they were I mean they were real strong I, I did also try and watch as many um, of the Armenian, you know, sporting events, and they were pretty amazing. I was very impressed by, by their strength. <laughs> but no, they were all really sweet and, and great people. So we've heard a lot about processing with, you know, big teams like uh, Team Canada and Team USA. What's the process like for a very small team like Armenia? Do things just show up in the mail in a box? Uh, what, what what do you mean? What what things like, like your when uniform? you get your your uniform, your opening ceremony outfit, any other things they give to you? Yes. So for me, uh, that that actually is an interesting story um, because Armenia is not like the most reliable. Armenians are always late. They're kind of on their own time. Like, eh, it'll get done. Like, they're very not type A, and I am very type A. And I'm sure it was different for the athletes that were in Armenia because they, you know, they got their luggage, they got their sweatsuits, they got their, you know, whatever their competition uniforms were, um, their opening ceremonies uniforms, all of that stuff. They got packaged and they probably picked it up at the national training um, facility, like in the middle of Armenia, like in the capital city. But for me, I'm in the United States. And so I'm like, well, how am I going to get these things that I need. For my leotard, I mean, I bought my own leotard. I didn't buy it. Um, Ozone Leotard sponsored it for me, and they, they made that Mount Ararat leotard, and that was really a, a big deal um, for me, and I was really grateful for them. But the opening ceremonies uniform was, like, that was huge. I was like, I need to have this uniform in my hands before I show up to the Olympics because I can't, can't really trust that they're going to remember to bring mine because you know, they would have passed out everybody else's and who's going to remember that there's one more to bring. So I actually had a friend who was going to Armenia just randomly. He was going to Armenia a couple of weeks before the Olympic Games. And I called him up and I said, you need to do me this huge favor. Please go to the National Training Center, pick up this uniform. They are, they know that I'm going to be like, you're going to be there and you're supposed to pick it up. And, you know, everything is all set. And he was like, okay, are you sure? Like, what, what am I supposed to do? I was like, just get, get the uniform and bring it to me. And so he's like, okay, great. Got the uniform. He's like guarding it with his life on his way back, um, back to the United States. He mails it to me because he actually lives in LA. He mailed it to me. I got it maybe like a week before the, I was leaving for the Olympics. It needed tailoring. It needed fitting. So I was like, well, good thing I had it because it was going to be falling off of me if, if I didn't. So I, then everything was all set. It was in my hands. I brought it with me to the Olympics and everything was all set and ready to go. And the coach that ended up coming with me, he, I had told him, you know, uh, my friend is going to bring this stuff. Do you want me to get your uniform too? And he was like, no, no, Armenia will bring it. It's not a big deal. Like, so it, it will be there when we arrive. Well, Armenia forgot his opening ceremonies uniform, and they had said, well, you don't have your uniform. You can't walk in the ceremonies. And I was like, thank goodness I, like, went through all of this trouble to get my uniform because I was not going to miss the opening ceremonies. That was super important to me. Um, Luckily, he borrowed another, like, athlete that wasn't going to walk, so it was fine, but there wouldn't have been somebody for me. So... It, it was a little bit different for me to get the things that I needed um, just because I wasn't in Armenia. And they were like, oh, you could, you can come to Armenia and pick it up. And I'm like, I'm not going to travel all the way to Armenia to just pick up my things. So anyway, it worked out really well. That was a long and drawn out story. <laughs> but that's how it worked, worked for me. <laughs> how was the difference between the opening ceremonies and the closing ceremonies? Opening ceremonies was definitely more formal. You know, everybody marches out. Um, in their own respective countries. 
Um, and the closing ceremonies was more of like a gathering of like all of the nations and everyone just celebrating like the, the major accomplishments that everybody did. And it was just like a huge, a huge party, um, which was really nice. I kind of liked how they did that. I don't know if they do that every time, but yeah, you were kind of just interspersed with all the other athletes. It didn't matter if you were from Armenia, the United States, you know, Russia, wherever, everybody was just together and having a good time. So yeah, it was, it was really cool. It was nice. Have you gotten the OLY for your, after your name? The o, uh... I have. Okay. Yeah. Good. I got, I got that little certificate. I, I put it at the end of my, my signature. <laughs> I'm not sure if anybody knows what it means, but I still put it up there. I'm proud of it. So you were talking about going back to Armenia and and staying there for an extended time and, and visiting gymnastics facilities. What, what's been the reaction from the gymnasts in Armenia to your representation of them? I think overall, like, overall, they were super excited and thankful that somebody did it and kind of paved the way. In Armenia, it is still, it, it's work, it's getting better, but it is still a very male dominated society. Um, the expectation is that, you know, you're not really supposed to do sport. You're not supposed to get sweaty. You're not, you know, you're, you're just supposed to do your female, you know, things and eventually, you know, get married, have children, have a family and kind of move on with your life in that way. Um, so I think it was really inspiring for girls to see that, you know, there are other options. Sport is a really great way to learn about yourself, to explore the world, to, you know, just open up tons of doors to, to different opportunities. And that was something that was really important to me when I was making my Olympic push was to make it known that it's not impossible, you know, Age is just a number. Your country of origin is just a place. Um, you know, yes, there's going to be obstacles for you to accomplish whatever goals you have set for you, but having a goal and working towards it is important, um, no matter how many things you have to overcome. Um, and so I think when I, when I went to Armenia, the girls that I worked with were just at awe of, like, all of the possibilities that they could have now that I did it. And they saw that it was possible. So that was really great. I, I really, my hope is to continue building um, women's gymnastics to, in Armenia, to continue building just the culture of athletics and the culture of fitness and the culture of sports, because it isn't necessarily a priority, even though healthy living is super important. And that is my hope and dream and I started it back in 2019 when I took that one visit and my plan and, you know, after my Olympic push, but my plan was to continue going back and continue building and then COVID happened. So the travels have been put on hold, but that's the hope and that's the dream. And, and I hope that more girls and boys can, can realize that whatever their dreams are, it's, it's definitely possible and it's, it's never too late to, to make it happen. There are going to be girls competing at LA 28 from Armenia because of you. Do you, did you, have you thought, (laughs) have you thought of that, that they're going to come, they're going to come from Armenia to here to compete because you came from here to there. Yeah, that would be great. Oh my gosh. That would be awesome. What else do you got, Allison? Uh, I just wanted to ask how life is for a PA in COVID. Oh man. Um, So, so I work in labor and delivery, specifically in surgery. So obviously, you know, our world didn't end. People still needed to deliver a baby in a pandemic. And so I still, you know, went into work every day, not really knowing what to expect. So the first couple of months were actually really scary. We, we didn't have enough personal protective equipment. We didn't know anything about this virus. How can we get it? Where, like, how does it spread? How can we protect ourselves? Um, there were just so many questions about what is going on. However, like I knew I still had to show up. I knew I still had to be there for my patients. So it, it was very interesting the first couple of months and, and pretty scary just because of the unknown. Like everybody's always scared of the unknown. And so 
that was interesting. Now it's it, everything is pretty much routine. Everybody, you know, we wear a mask 24-7. We wear a face shield 24-7 um, or at least goggles when I'm in the operating room 24-7. You know, tons of hand hygiene, um, lots of restrictions in our hospital to only have healthy people in the rooms with our laboring patients. They're only allowed one visitor, you know, all sorts of things. And I think everybody was kind of on edge too because, you know, nobody wants to be a mom that is laboring all by themselves during a pandemic. Like that is, that was probably the scariest thing for our patients and, and our moms that were coming in because nobody knew, could we have their significant other with them? Could they breastfeed their baby after they delivered? You know, there were just so many unknowns. And as we, you know, every day we learn something new, every day it, it improves, but it's been, it's been quite the, the adventure and, and I, you know, I hope soon, which I don't know if, when soon will be, um, we do get a vaccine or we do figure it out, but we're just taking it one day at a time until we do. Are you getting any itch to go back for Tokyo? <laughs> well, every time I do one of these interviews and every time I talk about my uh, Olympic experience in Rio, I do, I do miss it. Like I said at the very beginning, anytime I watch, watch the routines I did, you know, I get chills. But I accomplished everything I wanted to. I invented my skill. I competed at the Olympic Games. I had the best experience of my life. I, had, I did the best routines I possibly could. I don't know what else I could do with this sport. Of course, I miss it. Of course, I love it. But I think it's my time to inspire and encourage the next generation. And that's what I've really been focusing on. And like I said before, I'm really hoping that Armenia continues to develop in, in their sports. And like you said, hopefully in 2028, we have some girls from Armenia coming and competing at LA. That would be awesome. I know, just thinking of that, I'm, I'm like going to make myself cry. But it's really, it's it's such an honor to be able to be in a position to inspire others and, and be the door that others were for you. I hope so. I, I mean, that's the only thing I can ask for, is for people to watch my journey or remember my journey and, you know, catapult themselves from where I'm at and just take it even further and experience even more and have the amazing opportunities that I had moving forward. Like you catapult yourself over the low bar, flip around. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I could watch that all day, that routine. It was so amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Hurry. You can follow Hurry on Instagram at Twitter at Hurry Gabeshin. And she is also on Facebook at Hurry Gabeshin Armenian Gymnast. She has a business helping athletes with college recruiting, and that is fulloutrecruit.com. So check that out as well. She was delightful. I mean, I could, like you say, we'll have links to her uh, competitions from Rio on the show notes because they are so delightful to watch. The way she does kiss every apparatus was so charming. And then hearing the story behind that, just oh, my heart. That it was just spontaneous and it was at that moment. And But seriously, her move is so beautiful. And I love a twist. I just generally like a gymnastics twist. Mm -hmm. So with a move with a twist, I'm like, I'm all for that. I can't believe no one's ever done that before. I know. And I want more people to do it now. A, because I want to hear them say, oh, that's the Gabishian. Because if I had a move named after me, I would want people to replicate it just because. You know, sometimes I would imagine that there are many moves in the code of points that just are there and people don't do. Right. Well, when we talked to Jake Dalton, he was saying nobody does his move because it was so unique to him and the way he approached the bars. So that his move probably will just sit in the code of points. But this I could see definitely coming up. I think this would be great in college gymnastics. Oh, yeah. The way the code of points works. Mm -hmm. I think it will work better in college because I think it gets more credit the way oh, college okay. gymnastics scores things. Well, I loved it. Which would be I, awesome. I loved talking with her. It was just it was fascinating to hear the small country experience. 
or the country that has a small presence at an Olympics, especially with her being the first in her sport and where Armenia is strong is, is different sports. And now she's spreading her knowledge on to the young gymnasts of that country. She's like her own little Nadia. <laughs> well, should we check in with our team? Speaking of little countries... Welcome to Shukflistan. Uh, some sad news from Chelsea Memmel's adult gymnastics journey. She hurt her ankle. She was doing a, a landing and both of her ankles rolled out and she got, I believe, a grade two sprain on her right one. And so she's been doing just conditioning and, and stuff that she can do to stay fit, but not put weight and pressure on it. Uh, sadly, she had been invited to a check-in in Indianapolis with uh, the head coach. Yeah. And she had to miss that. Okay. That's all right. It's just an ankle sprain. Yep. She said, it's just a little bump in the road. You have those. I'm doing the right things. I'm going to be healthy. Come, coming back. Don't worry. Little bump on her ankle. Yes, exactly. Our artistic swimmer, Jacqueline Simino was on a McGill university panel talking about cardiac arrests and bystander resuscitation. You can see it on YouTube. We will have a link in the show notes. It also features Dr. Joni Rochette, bronze medal Olympian in figure skating, who's a doctor com who is completing her residency in anesthesiology. And Joni's gonna, uh, Joni talked about the story of her mother's sudden heart attack. This is, this sounds interesting. Dr. Joni Rochette sounds very cool to me. It, it does. And I hadn't realized she had gone on to medical school. I know. I love that. She was so delightful as a skater. So I'm glad she's got this whole other amazing career happening. Exactly. And we know this Jackie. Whole other second life. Right. And Jackie wants to go into medicine. So I'm curious to see what she has to say about this as well. Our weightlifting NGB president, Phil Andrews, wrote an article for iSportConnect.com about sports' ability to achieve gender parity. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. He, he argues that there's no reason why every sport shouldn't be able to achieve gender parity. So good on you, Phil. From a couple of broads, we got, the, we got your bag. <laughs> Who can touch our butts to the ground when we go to lift a weight. <laughs> I have been trying to do that ever since he told me that. Oh, yeah. And I have failed miserably. <laughs> well, that's now we know why the Brown is podcasting gymnastics mount and not a podcasting weightlifting move. There you go. All right. And if you've got a hankering to watch some curling, you can see John Schuster in action online. The 2020 season of Curling Night in America is now online. It was something that was filmed in 2019 and shown on NBCSN. So if you didn't get that deep cable station, you can now catch up on John Schuster's competitions. Curling night in America. I loved it. I love that. Because it would be Friday and like, oh, it's curling night in America. I don't know how many people thought it was curling night in America, but, you know, at least in my house it was. Uh, let's move on to some Tokyo 2020 news. Sadly, Inside the Games is reporting that there are no plans to open the Holland Heineken House at Tokyo 2020 next year. Right. They had they had announced that before COVID originally. And then when it was postponed, they were reassessing. Mm -hmm. And now it's really not happening. Right. And I would imagine that's because that pretty much has a reputation as a big party house. So I'm sure they don't want yes. to have a lot of crowds there. And Heineken flowing uh, just is not a good mixture with the coronavirus we are learning. And I want to tell you a little bit about a suggestion that we in this household have for Tokyo 2020 organizers, if you happen to be listening, organizing committee. So Ben and I were watching a little bit of the European Rowing Championships this weekend, and it was brand new stuff that was happening really recently. And their medal ceremony, so they had, it was in Poland, and they had the people come out with the medals on the trays in the native costumes. They set the medals and the little stuffed animals on podiums, and then they left. The teams came out, and then the team members gave each other the medals. Like, one person stepped out and put all the medals on each of the, their teammates' necks, and then somebody else put a medal on that person's neck. 
So it was very social distance. Oh, that's very sweet. Right, because your team is obviously you're in your own bubble. Mm -hmm. Now, how did they do that with gold, silver, bronze? Were they several feet apart, each group? Or did they do it separately? No, they weren't super far apart by the time you got a whole team up there. The podiums were probably six feet apart that the medals were on, but the teams were probably pretty close together. But I have a feeling they're more insulated together than having some officials from the outside or whoever's going to give the medals from the outside would be to them. And they know right. they've and all you been avoid tested, that too. Very... Right, and you avoid that awkward chick-chat when the official comes and puts their net. Oh, congratulations. You did a very nice job with that oar. Right. Kiss, kiss. Yeah. Yeah. No kissing. There will be no kissing in Tokyo. Right. But I thought that was a really interesting way to have a medal ceremony that was socially distant and yet still was meaningful. I think it would be very nice and very touching to have your teammate award you the medal. But then what will you do for individual sports? I would just, you'd get it from the box and put it on yourself. Or maybe or they give it to you each could, other. For each other. Yeah. That would be really that cool. That would be cute too. Nice sportsmanship. Wow, we got ideas. I like that. Just a thought. We'll see what happens. Call then us, Tokyo 2020. We're here for you. All right, let's move on to a little bit of Paris 2024 news. Inside the Games has reported that Paris 2024 has chosen the firms that will build the Olympic Media Village. They are promising a, a garden city for the 21st century. Hopefully we'll see that. Two companies have been selected to build the village. It's in located in Le Bourget, a commune in the northeastern suburbs of Paris. It's about 6.6 miles from the center of Paris. And uh, what they're going to do is have two stages of construction with 700 homes or apartments, I'm sure, ready in time for the games. And then the remaining 600 are going to be completed after the games are over, which I thought was really fascinating. But this is specifically for the media. Right. This is so not the athlete's village. Right. So it's going to accommodate about 2,800 journalists and technicians during the games. And then when the games are nice. done... Uh, and they've got the second phase built, it's going to accommodate 1,300 families. And they say huh. 20% of the, the housing will be social housing. That's interesting. I hope it is more like, I'm a little concerned about them referring to it as Garden City. If you've ever been to Garden City, Long Island. Nope, never have. It's fine. It's a fine town, but I don't know if it's very Olympic quality. Mm. I'm guessing they're thinking so beautiful gardens everywhere in the in the village. Sort of like how Victoria, B.C. is the Garden City of Canada. Very much. Rather than Garden City, Long Island. Yes. It smell good. I hope you don't have allergies. <laughs> they will start construction next summer, and it's due to be finished in March 2024. And some other Olympic news. The Olympic Museum in Sarajevo has reopened. So this, I think, I is saw this super... and I started to cry. Did... Oh, I know. It's so exciting. The museum had been completely destroyed during the, as the Sarajevo Times calls it, the aggression on Bosnia and Herzegovina and the siege of Sarajevo. It's taken 28 years for this to reopen, which is incredible when you think about how destroyed the city was and, and how much they've been trying to come back. And now they've uh, rebuilt it and it is open to the public again. And there to help open the museum this was Prince Albert. Yes. Always good to have a royal on hand. Makes it official. But this, I did read this article and I got a little teared up because I, I remember Sarajevo, obviously. It was mm -hmm. beautiful Olympics. And then I remember during the war them showing pictures of the different stadiums and just, you know, the entire city, of course, was destroyed and the people really suffered. And remembering how much joy that Olympics was and then seeing the destruction was so heartbreaking. So this is such a nice, 
joyful moment for the city. Yes. To, put, to move on and, and to rebuild and to reclaim some of that history that was lost. Yes. And it'll be nice to have all those memories from 1984 preserved. And they also feature the 2019 European Youth Olympic Winter Festival, which they also hosted. So put that on your list of places to visit when you can travel again. I will never be home. I know. I know. It's like, enjoy your home time while you got it, because you're not going to be home after this. I am curious to see how they're doing with rebuilding some of the other sites, because I know that in in the the articles that come out every Olympics of the uh, venues that are in ruins because, you know, the Olympics are horrible and bad. The bobsled and loose track from Sarajevo always shows up in those pictures because, well, and you go, well, which is, it's like, uh, gee, there was a war, right? It's, it's not like, (laughs) I I, I don't think that's a legacy problem. (laughs) Yes. So, but there is not poor planning on their part, right? (laughs) Just a little skirmish that destroyed everything. So, I have seen stories where people have been trying to go fix it up again as a place to at least do a summertime luge training. I know there's a lot of destruction, but they might be able to rebuild it. They've got a ski jump and everything. It, it'll be interesting to see how they do with bringing back a, a elite winter sports culture to the uh, city. Oh, well, the, the, the youth festival that they had, the alpine skiing competitions were at the same venue as the 1984 Winter Olympics. And they also had hockey at the Zetra Olympic Hall. So oh, some stuff. that's a name I haven't heard in 40 years. <laughs> Just you said it and a little brain cell went, Ooh, I know that. <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> Well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Let us know what movie you would come up with that could be named after you. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook. Next week, Book Club Claire will be back for a discussion of A Shot at History by Abhinav Bindra. As we go out to music by Archdale, thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. entertainment and I and I wanted everybody to feel part of my journey